Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Uh, Time is just after 7.30 and, of course, you are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. First up, we have to say a very good morning to Virginia Haywood. Morning, Virginia. Good morning. I must admit, it's cold and I've had a touch of difficulty getting in here this morning. (laughs) (laughs) And as soon as I walked out the door, it started to rain. Well, but do we need that rain? Exactly. So I'm not very complaining. Very good thing to see. Yep. Very good thing to see. My my complaint was all the wind we had yesterday because that dries out all your pots and things dries so out quickly. And also, I've lost another huge limb that's taken down oh, part of my fence. Right. But you know, that's life. It is. I've just moved it so that the horses don't notice that there's a hole in the fence. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Exactly. <laughs> Okay, you might have to do something about that. A bit more, yes. Yes. Be a bit more creative. (laughs) Yep. We also have to, of course, say a very good morning to Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants. Morning, Stephen. Good morning, Pam, and good morning, everybody. Seems like forever since I was in here last. Because uh, I missed the last four You missed Radiothon. Yeah, so I yes. wasn't here for the Radiothon, so I haven't been in for a whole month. I was almost feeling like I needed some sort of therapy. <laughs> but anyhow, back again. And yes, I agree with Virginia. It's been a hard morning to get up and moving. And that wind has been absolutely awful. Uh, even driving down this morning down the Calder Freeway, because I drive a little van and there's... Yep, you're getting buffeted. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's sort of got a huge amount of wind resistance and no weight. So, uh. you know, you find yourself sort of uh, wobbling all over the road. They probably all thought I was drunk coming down this morning. Um, but, uh, yes, and yesterday, I had to go to a wedding yesterday, and it was awful, blowy, oh, dreadful. terrible day for yeah, a wedding. Awful. But anyhow, um, I'll be just pleased when the wind stops. I mean, I can cope with the rain. I don't really mind it too much. You can always stand under something so you don't get wet. But when it's really blowy and windy, I mean, the whole nursery looks like it's full of ground covers for a start. Cause everything, <laughs> Everything's all the pots gone go over. Down and, and, you, and you spend hours picking everything up and then the wind comes up again and all goes down again. Well, there's almost no point in standing yeah. them up. Well, yet. yes, a lot of things I don't. Although if you've got a busy Sunday, you've sort of got to go around and pick up the pots. Because so they've got get time. Around. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. Yeah, otherwise they're trying to step over trees. Of course, week. true. Yeah, so, yeah, so. It's, a, it's the one thing in life that I really could live without is the strong, heavy winds. Mm. Yeah, ah, well, mm. we can't do much about it. No, nope, just got to live through it. That's right. We also have to say a very good morning to Graham Sargent. Morning, Graham. Good morning, Pam. Good morning, everybody else there out in listening land. I, I've just listened to all these comments this morning. It's, it's not the wind yow, is it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I just come back from a poultry show at the Melbourne Showgrounds yesterday and the poultry people were there and we were contending with the wind and uh, we had a gentleman there judging from, he came from Warwick up in um, New South Wales and um, you talk about uh, drought and dryness, he was describing the situation mm. up there as quite, really quite grim. Oh dear. Um, there was a gentleman on, on ABC radio this morning, I listened to Macca as I come in and he, um, he was a crop duster. And he's talking about contending with the wind, even out crop dusting, and he's doing 220 k's an hour in the plane. <laughs> Can you imagine what that's like to oh. with the wind? That'd be amazing. How you'd negotiate yeah, that? a job you wouldn't want to. <laughs> yeah. That's right. I, I mean, couldn't, being a nurseryman's bad enough. I mean, we're quite, complaining. Heavens. Yeah. <laughs> he could, I couldn't quite work out how he could do any dusting at, at 220 k's an hour, but I think he was hopping from one place to another. I don't think he was doing much dusting. But how would you control where the dust? I mean, you know. Yeah, you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't you know. do it. 
do it. No. That would be crazy. It's no. like you don't spray when it's on a windy day. I mean, Ooh. that's silly. You wear more of it that way. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And that's yeah. not a good look, I no, can tell you. No, it certainly isn't. <laughs> and when, when you wear it and you've got liquid seaweed in there, you start to worry about it. Am I, I going to start to grow too? <laughs> you could, or you might grow an interesting sort of layer. Yeah, right. <laughs> yes. Oh, dear. Okay, I'm going to jump straight into uh, some of the community announcements. Um, first up, um, I mentioned this last week, uh, Friends of Geelong Botanic Gardens, uh, they're having a uh, themed walk and this is taking place today. So if you're prepared to go and uh, brave a bit of uh, cool, uh, I think the wind is gradually going to settle down. Um, but they're having a walk uh, through Eastern Park. Um, now it's a fine example of a mid-Victorian park recognised and protected by the National Trust and Heritage Victoria, and it's reflecting Geelong's history. You meet your guide at the Geelong Botanic Gardens main entrance steps, um, where you'll be introduced to some outstanding tree specimens. Now, uh, the time is two o'clock. As I said, you meet your guide at the front steps of Geelong Botanic Gardens, and cost is a gold coin donation. So that's on this afternoon. Now, uh, coming up, we have a few things um, on uh, 21st and 22nd. There's going to be um, a very big uh, bonsai exhibition. It's taking place at Mantra Bell City, which I presume is Mantra Hotel, along there in Bell Street. It's at 215 Bell Street in Preston. And uh, it's... uh, (coughs) There'll be a magnificent display of bonsai, of course, and there'll be a specialty bonsai vendor sales area. And it's being run in conjunction with the 31st AABC, and I'm not sure what that stands for, National Bonsai Convention. Uh, Now, it's running 21st and 22nd of July, 10 a.m. through to 4 p.m. on both days, and cost is adults $5.00. Children under 15 are free if they're accompanied by an adult. Now, also coming up on Saturday, 21st of July, um, Friends of Burnley Gardens have got a special screening of Five Seasons, the Gardens of Piet Udolf. Uh, Now, this is taking place, of course, at Burnley Gardens, 3.30 through till 6 o'clock. There'll be afternoon tea served at 3.30, with the film screening at 4.15. And then this will be followed by a panel discussion chaired by John Rayner with landscape designers Andrew Laidlaw, Michael McCoy and Sandra McMahon. Now, ticket price is $30. To book, um, you uh, go to trybooking.com forward slash capitals W-S-E-D. So you go to trybooking.com forward slash capitals W-S-E-D. The venue is the main hall at Burnley Campus, um, which, of course, is at 500 Yarra Boulevard in Richmond. Bookings close Wednesday the 18th of July. Uh, Now, if you'd like more information, you can visit the uh, Friends of... um, Burnley Gardens website, which is www.fobg.org.au, or you could try the Friends phone number, which is 90356815. Now, also coming up, Open Gardens Victoria are having a special um, workshop 
coming up. This is with um, landscape designer Stephen Reid and he's presenting a winter gardening workshop <clears throat> on Saturday 21st of July and it's taking place at the beautiful property Chesterfield in Geelong. Now Stephen will show home gardeners how to get their gardens ready for spring with practical demonstrations of rose and fruit tree pruning and how to cut back and divide perennials and ornamental grasses. Now there's going to be two sessions a morning session and an afternoon session available. Now, these sessions will include light refreshments and a guided tour of the one-acre garden surrounding Chesterfield, um, which is one of Geelong's oldest surviving Georgian homes, built in the late 1840s. In recent years, Stephen has led the refurbishment of the historic garden there. So, uh, morning session will run from 9.30 through till 12. The afternoon session will run from 1 through till 3.30. Chesterfield is at 221 Noble Street in Newtown, which is a suburb of Geelong. Cost is $35, which includes workshop, the notes, morning or afternoon tea, and the garden tour. Uh, You can book online via try booking at opengardensvictoria.org.au. Now, also on that same weekend, 21st, 22nd of July, on both days, um, there's going to be a winter plant sale of Australian plants uh, for the Growing Friends group of the Cranbourne Friends of Royal Botanic Gardens, Victoria. So it'll be 10 a.m. through to 4 p.m. on both days, both 21st and 22nd. The location, of course, is uh, Royal Botanic Gardens, Cranbourne. And there'll be a wide range of Australian plants in tubes and larger pots for sale. Prices from $3. And finally, um, Werribee Park Heritage Orchard have got their Winter Grafting and Tree Sales Day. This is coming up on Sunday, July 29th, 10am through to 3pm. It's free entry. There'll be food and drink. You can watch grafting demonstrations, which will be ongoing throughout the day. Um, You can learn techniques for grafting or budding fruit trees. You can have new trees grafted or budded for you. Uh, There'll be a range of apples, peaches, pears, plums, citrus. Uh, You can buy one-year-old grafted heritage fruit trees when available. Um, You can buy your scion wood for home grafting. You can talk to the experts in gardening and fruit growing. Um, Select suitable rootstocks. There'll be rare and unusual edible plants for for sale and fruit tastings in season. And subject to availability, there'll be pruning demonstrations, orchard tours and edible weed walks. Now, it all takes place down at Werribee Park Heritage Orchard. That's at Werribee Park, K Road in Werribee. Um, On the special grafting day only, you enter via Gate 5. Follow the signs for the grafting day visitors' car park and take a short walk to the old stable. So I know that's always a very, very popular um, event. So that's coming up uh, 29th of uh, July and the time there is 10 a.m. through to 3 p.m. Okay, well, let's uh, open up our lines for talk back. If you'd like to ask a gardening question this morning, we'd love to hear from you. That number is 94190155. Or if you'd like to speak to Carol on the outside line this morning, you can call on 94198377. And just a reminder to everyone... 
that the 3CR Gardening Show is now on Facebook. Um, if you'd like to go to Facebook and search for 3CR Gardening Show, you should be able to find it. And uh, we'd love you to to um, like the page, but you can... Um, you can uh, follow uh, some of the posts and also some of these community announcements I know are up there already as well. All right. Let, shall we start with some of the plants, Stephen? What a good idea. Let's yes. start with some of yours. All right. Um, at this time of the year, there are a very, very small number of flowering climbers. Um, they're few and far between. But those that there are are rather charming. And the one I've brought in this morning is a form of Clematis serosa, spelt with a C. Um, and it's uh, at some stage or another, somebody went out and collected seed of wild Clematis serosa, and it comes mainly from the Balearic Islands. And they raised a whole pile of seedlings, and they found quite a lot of diversity amongst them. And there's a pure cream one that they've called Wisley Cream, so I'm assuming that the uh, selections were done, done at Wisley. And there was one with quite a large flower <coughs> that's heavily spotted with purple inside, which is appropriately, if naffly, called freckles. Um, <laughs> and it's a charming little plant. The, uh, the foliage is basically evergreen, although this particular plant can look a bit scruffy by late summer. Mm. It doesn't really like the hot weather. Well, it coats with the hot weather, but it goes to semi-dormancy in the hot weather. So although it's evergreen, it never looks at its best in midsummer. But then as the cooler weather sets in, it sets up a whole pile of new foliage. And then it starts to flower normally around about April. And it just keeps going. Um, uh, any of the forms of Clematis serosa will flower from April round through to around about the end of October, early November. So if you want a flowering climber, I can't think of many flowering climbers that actually have the length of flowering period that this particular um, species of Clematis has. Um, but if you're wanting something that's got a really long flowering period that will be attractive right through the winter months, and also reasonably bird attractant as well, um, then any of the forms of Clematis serosa uh, could be well worthwhile having. How, how big would that get, Stephen? Oh, it's not, a, it's not a, uh, a vastly big climber. I've actually got one growing, funnily enough, on a rose arch. There uh, you go. <laughs> and it's covering the rose arch rather well. Um, but it's not so rampant as to be, you know, running off all over the joint. I've, I've got several. Mm. I've got one... Are going over the vegetable garden, mm. and it is so rampant, mm. and it, the seeds pop up all through the vegetable mm. garden. So I've ripped it out. It's just mm. so of cerosa, or is it napalensis you're talking about? Because the napalensis will seed everywhere. Yes, it might be napalensis. Yeah, it has I've purple got, stamens. Yes, I've got, and I've got this yeah. growing up a tree, mm. and you walk under the tree, and because the flowers sort of hang down, yeah. you look up and you can just see all the freckles. Yeah, it's really charming. It is charming. absolutely beautiful. Yeah, lovely plant, and so very worthwhile. Um, surprisingly tough and hardy. Uh, I mean, it's not, you know, some of those big flowered clematis are quite prima donna-ish, um, but some of the little wild species ones are quite tough and hardy. Mm. Um, so they're, they're pretty easy to grow. Uh, they grow thick enough to be a good screening plant, so if you need something on a fence or um, uh, a, a frame somewhere to, to screen you, it would work well like that. And as Virginia suggests, it's rather lovely if it's up high enough 
where you can sort of walk in under them and look up into the bells. Yes, because uh, it's, it's in a tree. It just looks lovely. Yeah, they are. They're beautiful things. Well, it's a conspiracy, Stephen, to, to get rid of those roses that oh, are yes, quite nearby. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, of course, you walk through my rose arch and you don't get prickled. Right. <laughs> as well. Um, the important thing with them is to remember to plant them deeply and yeah. keep a very cool root run, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, most yeah. clematis are reasonably sun and heat tolerant, but they don't like it at the roots. Mm. So, yeah, so uh, one of the things they do in England a lot, I've noticed, is that they'll put some slates or some stones over the root system to oh, keep right. the roots cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's something you never see done here. No. But it's actually quite a sensible... I do it. You do? Mm, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah right. I think it's quite a sensible idea, some bricks or some... It doesn't really matter what it is, as long as it's some sort of something that'll absor- thing. The thing with the bricks is it'll absorb the heat. Yeah. Whereas if you just mulch it thickly, you know, mm. it still mm. get through on a really hot day. I think it's mm. a really good one. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so you could do that. Because uh, I've got so well. many clematis in my garden now. Mm. Yeah, they are lovely things. Yes. And uh, it's a huge genus. People, I don't think people realise just how big a genus it is. Mm. Um, and it's basically cosmopolitan because there's species that come from virtually every major landmass in the world. Including here. Including here. Um, New Zealand's got uh, at least one. Um, we've got several, mm. um, including some gorgeous little high alpine ones from Tasmania uh, that have been used in breeding sort of little dwarf compact clematis, which seems a bit of an anathema, really, because you sort of think of clematis being a climber and these little things are little rock garden plants really um, and it's interesting because the Australian and the New Zealand ones I think almost without exception have male and female forms and yet clematis from most other parts of the world ha- uh, have flowers that are perfect and you don't need a male and a female so it's really odd that ours have developed that characteristic of having male and female forms so if you do buy the New Zealand one paniculata and I can't remember which way around it goes, but I think it's the male one that has the much larger showier flower um, than the female one. So if you can get them as vegetatively propagated plants of known male or female form, then you can select the better flowering forms. Mm. Um, but certainly the uh, ones from places like the Balearic Islands, it's just the cultivar that you get, and they're all the same. There's no male and female version of them. And, uh, yeah, I just love the winter clematis. Mm. Um, And, yeah, they're just such... I mean, they're not overly spectacular. I mean, the flowers are small, and they're subtle in colour, but because there's nothing else to compete with them, uh, I think they're valuable. Mm. I think they're really good plants. So, yeah, so this one's freckles. You can get Wisley cream. There's straight Cerosa balearica, which is the freckled one with a slightly smaller flower than freckles. Uh, So there's a range of different cultivars of it showing up around the place at the moment and they're all pretty it doesn't really matter in a sense which ones you go for uh, I have a soft spot for the freckly ones in preference to the straight cream belled ones but that's just me um, uh, I think you'd enjoy any of them really mm. so there Excellent. you go so, so Clematis serosa which I think is C-I-R-R-H-O-S-A mm. uh, so it's a bit of a weird sort of spelling uh, and of course the wild freckled one is Balearica meaning it comes from the Balearic Islands Mm. So, there you go. So that's Clematis serosa. Um, and if I was going to do another one, what would I do? I think I might do the one that Virginia doesn't like. Um, <laughs> um, is, that most, is that its name? Virginia, Virginia doesn't like. Yeah, I've, I've, I've named that close. Acubas um, <laughs> are one of those plants that, in fact, do tend to galvanise people. Some people love acubas, some people can't stand acubas. Anybody who spent any time in England probably doesn't like them because they use them to hide public lavatories. Oh, Uh, really? (laughs) And um, so, but a group of more useful, drought-tolerant, heavy-shade-tolerant shrubs can be hard to find. 
they make good tub specimens. They can be used as indoor plants. Um, they are really, really adaptable as long as you don't put them out in the, in the strong sunlight where their leaves will bleach or burn. Um, so they're very shade tolerant. And the common one around is called the Japanese stardust laurel, and it has yellow spots all over the leaves, which I guess is fairly hectic, and some people don't like it. It's awful. <laughs> I think it looks like sunlight is shining through <laughs> to put a more romantic bent on it. Um, so go well in a reasonably shady spot? Very shady spot. Yeah. They'll cope with very dark corners in a garden. In fact, that's where the variegated ones actually stand up best mm. because they do give a bit of light and colour into a dark corner. But there's a whole range of acubas available now and I'd really like to get some more. I went onto a website once and there's a nursery in America somewhere. It's got this whole range of of Acuba cultivars, one of which had bright green leaves and all the new growth came up pure white. Oh, wow. And I thought, mm. that is the most outrageous thing I've ever seen <laughs> in my life. But anyhow, getting back to the one I bought in, uh, I imported this one from Dan Hinckley's nursery in America many, many years ago as Acuba uh, Himalamicus. It turns out that it's not. It's actually Acuba japonica uh, lancifolia, meaning lance-shaped leaves, so it's narrow leaves, has no spotting on the foliage, so it has just a straight green leaf, so those who have a uh, variegation aversion could plant this. It is a female clone, and so it can get wonderful glossy bright red berries on it. The issue with most acubas is, though, that you have to have a boy and a girl. And for those who've got even the, a modicum of biology, they'll realise that it's only the girl ones that fruit. So if you buy a boy acuba, it's just going to be a green shrub, but it will in fact um, pollinate your female acubas and you'll get berries that last and last and last on the plant. So they've just ripened up recently uh, and I will have these lovely red fruit on my um, narrow leaf to Cuba, uh, probably for about three, four months. And do the birds like the, the berries? Bird, birds yeah. don't seem to touch them. Oh, really? Um, okay. Which they, is good. They yeah. just stay on the plant. I mean, I don't mind giving the birds some feed, but uh, it's quite nice to have something that holds its berries, because mm. after all, if you're planting something for berries, you get a little annoyed with our avian friends if they come in and clean them up before they've even coloured properly, mm. which they do. But also, given it's foreign, you yeah. don't want them spreading it for you. No, well, there's probably that as well. And I have to say, if you have got a female acuba in the garden that does set seed if it's in a reasonably moist spot you will get the odd self-sown seedling come up around them but certainly never in any sort of quantity um, and I've started collecting a few of the different forms there's a lovely self-pollinating variety called Rosani which is quite dwarf with quite big broad glossy bright green leaves uh, I've got several different variegated ones including one that has a gold margin around the leaf instead of the spotty effect um, and I would love to have some more I've also got one from China that has huge dark green leaves that you know twice the size of a laurel leaf um, with really heavy puckered veiny which is just beautiful which again I bought as originally uh, a Cuba chinensis but it would seem it isn't uh, I've been um, I've got somebody on Facebook that follows me from China and I put up something on my website about this Ocuba chinensis and this guy got back and said, I'm sorry, it's not Ocuba chinensis, it's Ocuba chlorensis. Uh, and chinensis actually has a flat leaf. It doesn't have a hard, a heavy pucket leaf. So I obviously haven't got chinensis. I've got something else. Uh, so I've got to relabel everything, which is a bit unfortunate because I bought a whole pile of um, printed labels for it. Oh, no. Um, uh, but anyhow, so acubas are probably one of those groups of plants that, yes, there, are, there is a fair bit of prejudice against them. Um, but I think there's some really interesting ones, and they are fabulous plants for dry shade. You're quite right too, Stephen. It was living in Britain that put me off them because yeah. they are the most in common plant yeah. in gardens, yeah. in public 
spaces. Yeah, they, they were planted everywhere mm. because they were basically bomb-proof. Mm. So you could plant them and they would just survive. Um, they would grow in tr- tree-root-infested shade up against the public lavatory. Uh, and... Um, and yes, they were ubiquitous, so I can understand a, a, an aversion. Um, but fortunately, they don't seem to have the same problem here. It's just those who don't like variegation per se who tend not to sort of become fond of the normal variegated cucumbers. So about, about how big do, do they get? The uh, it varies from variety to variety. This particular one, my original plant I bought into the country, is now up about a metre and a half towards mm-hmm. two metres. And it's taken probably 15 years to get there. I mean, it's not the world's fastest growing shrub at times. But that um, can be good too. Yeah, well, it? yes, it doesn't sort of take off. So if you're going to grow it as a pot plant or an indoor plant, you don't necessarily want something that grows exceedingly quickly. Mm-hmm. So it's just a good steady doer. Um, and so over the years, they'll get bigger. I would imagine, except for Rosani, which tends to be somewhat semi-dwarf, most of the Acuba cultivars will eventually get up to about the three metres, but mm-hmm. we might be two metres under before it gets to three metres tall. Mm-hmm. So they're not fast, fast growers. But I really quite like them and some of the lush leaf ones do have a pseudo tropical look about them so you know they're, they're quite nice if you're looking to make one of those sort of over the top foliage gardens mm. so I think a cube is a good and I think this um, long foliaged one is particularly pretty Okay. So there you go. Could, could you use them in a windbreak, Stephen? No, not really no. I mean, because they like dry shade yes. they're going to be under something or behind right. something or yeah. they're not going to be a front ranking sort of windbreaky sort yeah. of shrub yeah. and because they're comparatively slow growing too I think you'd, you know, you're you going to get blown away for a fair while before they're going to give you any shelter Okay, I'm always looking for something that that fills in our windbreak tunnels that I see around the paddocks mm. Mm. And, 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 and it happens so often the natives get up above and there's a tunnel straight underneath and yeah. they actually do lose animals because of that because of the animals um, you know, get into the shelter, especially calves and, 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 and to a less extent lambs Lambs are pretty tough, but calves can be lost in, in windbreaks. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah, well, a cuba won't do it, sorry. There Grow the wattles that lower down. and Yeah, some of the yeah. dwarf varieties of things are probably the way to go. Yes. Mm. All right, now. Okay, Virginia, did you have a message there? Yes, Betty has rung on the outside line right. and wants to know how far down do you prune the taller salvias? Oh. I prune my tall... Well, it depends. Really, Betty, it mm. depends how far, how much you want it to be a tall shrub. Most of my tall ones, a few, quite a few of whom are just in bud at the moment. And then my purple ones are all in flower in the process of falling over because the wind's been so strong. <laughs> yes. And because of this tendency to fall over, I prune them very hard. Mm. Some of the pink ones that will flower in August, I tend to leave them because I want them to be quite large. So it, it is a matter of choice, mm. but with I've been pruning all my salvias. I've God only knows how many of them I've got now, and I tend to prune to where I can see growth coming. And then, so you wouldn't just slice them off at ground level necessarily. Some of them I would, but, yeah. if, but some of them I, you know, you could prune with head shears. Mm. But if you if you, if you don't know, mm. and the other thing is, if you don't know how sensitive it is going to be to frost and yeah, things well, like that's that. Thing, of course, so yes. I tend to, and consequently, I sometimes end up pruning things twice. You know, I'll take it down to where I can see some growth, and then when it gets going, and I look at it again in spring, I thought, oh no, I should have taken you down further and do it. I tend, to, I don't tend to worry about pruning them after flowering because so many of them flower for so long. But I think it's always a good idea to prune things after flowering. Because I've got a big open garden coming up in October, 
I'm just, and my garden's so damn big, I'm just getting out and doing it, mm-hmm. which means I probably will lose some flowers. So really, Betty, I'd say you can prune the small, some of my smaller mm-hmm. ones I've pruned down to the ground mm-hmm. because they've got leggy and ugly and I figure if they don't make it, they'll get replaced. Some of my big ones I prune to the ground, others I prune to um, to to a, a size that I want them to disguise the shed next door or something like that. Yeah, well, and that's the other thing, of course, you can adapt your pruning technique to the aspect it's growing in for the purpose you're putting it to. Yes. So, yeah, so you do have that sense. problem if you don't prune them regularly. You tend to, on some of the smaller ones, you get that woody, uh, leggy yes. look that mm. is also very common in, in lavender, say. Yeah. Actually, that reminds me, I must go and check my salvia timboon and see if it's fallen over in the wind. Um, it's in a fairly sheltered spot, but it does tend to snap and crack and break. And yes, stuff. my timboons, I checked them this week. They're all right, but mm. my purple ones just right over. Oh, so they, I will prune them really hard. Yeah. The yes. timboons I don't prune hard at all because I want them to grow up to the height of the garage mm. and just hide it. Mm. Because you prune them, do you find it t- tends to strengthen them? Well, they certainly come back fast. <laughs> yeah. I think so. Mm. But I think, I mean, you know, in the wild they don't get pruned regularly. No. I mean, mm-hmm. they're, they're very, most of them are very tough and you, mm. can, you can adapt to what you want. Mm. You know, and you shape them. I mean, Meg's got some that are just so huge that one of them at least would fit in this whole studio. Mm. She obviously hasn't pruned it. Mm. You know, you don't have to prune them. But if you want them, you prune them to contain them, Mm. to get them to look how you Mm. want. And you get nice vigorous growth and it's fresh and it's not twiggy and gnarly and stuff. So you're refurbishing your bushes, Uh, aren't you? Yes, it's the same. I mean, you natives, you you prune virtually all of them, at Mm. at least tip prune them. Mm. Just just after flowering? Yeah. To mm. keep them tidy. Oh, I'd love to see that happen more often, to to reduce back down again the fire, the fire hazard. We we forget about fires when we don't have them, mm. and I'd love to see more natives pruned, and and the best times after flowering, hey? Mm. Yeah. I wouldn't prune a tree though. No. I, no, I think I think we tend to over prune trees myself. Mm. Yes, it's, it's, it depends on what you're trying to do. I mean, if you go to France and they do all that pollarding and coppicing and, and things, it, it can be quite handsome um, because they do it with some flair, whereas here when they send the people who cut things back from the power lines, they don't seem to do it with any flair. Um, or knowledge. Or knowledge, yes. Um, so it depends on what you're trying to create. I'm, I'm with you on the fact that I think a lot of people prune trees unnecessarily, um, but... It depends on what you're using the tree for, I guess. And, and also, I'm telling an absolute lie, I prune all my cottonuses. I've got about mm. five cottonus, yeah. which is the smoke bush, and I prune them all. Yeah. yeah. Usually every second year. Yeah, and it and depends I po- on, and the, I on the plant. Them. Yeah. Mm. Yes, the, the cottonuses do seem to appreciate that. They come back with lovely, vigorous, big, gutsy leaves, mm. and yes, they seem to love it. So yeah. your smoke bush, how much would you prune it back? I, I've chosen a point yeah. with all of them, which in most cases is about hip high, yeah. and I prune them back every second year to that point. Right. Mainly because I want, I want it, them to be bushy rather than tree. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But in the botanic gardens, a lot of them are pruned to the ground. Mm. You can prune them to the ground oh, yeah. quite happily. And yeah, they'll they come do back. that in England a lot, especially with the coloured leaf forms, because mm. you get extra big, interesting leaves, mm. and you get these long, strong canes that come up. They can look very effective. There's a magnificent uh, smoke bush at, at the old courthouse in Kilmore on the main street, and it looks absolutely glorious when it's, it's at its best. Mm. Yeah, the autumn colour on some of the smoke bushes can be 
pretty hard to toss. Yes. Okay, let's go to our first callers. And first up, we have Helen in Hampton. Good morning, Helen. Good morning. Um, look, uh, I have a problem. We've got a lot, very long um, driveway, and the garden strip between it and the fence is only 45 centimetres wide, and it's currently planted with ornamental pears, which we've been advised to take out because the roots are uh, affecting the driveway and um, causing a problem. So I'm actually looking for some advice. Love some bird or bee attract a uh, bird and bee, I guess, attracting um, trees or shrubs if possible. We have a huge problem with possums, and of course, want it with non-invasive roots. So, have you got any suggestions? I'll make one. Uh, yes. a, a little Chilean tree called Azara, A Z A R A. Uh, has tiny little evergreen leaves, lovely fanny growth, reasonably upright. You can remove the lower limbs if you wish to do so because of space limitations. Um, it flowers in August. Its flowers are virtually inconspicuous. They're tiny, but the whole garden will be smell, uh, s- sort of covered with the scent of vanilla when it's in flower. Oh, lovely. And how tall do they grow? About four, four and a half metres. Well, that sounds good. Somebody suggested, um, too, that they found on a list... Um, of non-invasive roots. One was blueberry ash and the other was coral gum, but I'm not familiar with it. Blueberry ash I wouldn't hesitate to use, uh, the Aliocarpus, that's quite pretty, and it has an upright habit and you can get a pink-flowered version and a white-flowered version. Uh, the only slight drawback with the blueberry ash might be if it's on a driveway, it gets, uh, it produces a really hard... Um, Very bluey grey berry on it uh, they're not particularly squashy so they don't act, they probably won't make a mess on the driveway but they could be like walking on marbles uh, which might be my only hesitation with the blueberry ash I mean it's a really pretty little tree and it's comparatively upright and narrow um, it would be easy to fit into a space like that and certainly its root system would be fine I would just have some reservations about the berries when it starts to get up to a mature size. What about a Malus trilobata? You could, although they also have the same issue with berries. Berries, yes, yeah. but they're very pretty. It's a beautiful tree, yeah, and That's it gets larger green sort of crabs on it. It's uh, a crab apple, the, yeah. the Malus trilobata, and it's quite, um, quite vertical. Yes. So that it, but do you really have to take out your pears? Yes, because the, the roots, um, we've had now three opinions um, from landscapers. One was from an arborist who said, we're going to have a huge problem, and already we can see that it's lifting, the roots are lifting the driveway. Well, I'm on the tree side, I have to say. I don't give a... a monkeys. Monkeys about driveways, personally. But uh, if, in fact, uh, you know, it is an issue to you, well, then I guess you've got well, to move it with possibly, it. it possibly could be an issue for um, our neighbours, and hmm. we have such lovely neighbours. We yeah, well, you certainly to. don't want to upset good neighbours, I have no. to say. No, they're uh, valuable. Yes, they are so, valuable. Um, the, Can I suggest uh, that maybe a tree is not such a good idea? Because um, trees have roots. Yes, well, that's why I'm looking for some advice because it is so narrow. Mm. So um, the you said the first one was the Azara, the yeah. Chilean Azara. Um, is it possum 
I've never seen a possum eat it, but I will never, ever guarantee anything against <laughs> possums. No, no. Because in different areas, different <laughs> possums will take to different things. So uh, certainly I've got three of them in my garden at home strategically planted so that wherever I walk in the garden when the azara's in flower, I can catch the perfume. Yes. Uh, so I've got three of them. And I, and, and I certainly have plenty of possums around, and they cause me merry hell with my maples and quite a few of the other things in the garden, but I've never seen them attack the azara. Okay, and they are bird attracting? Not so much bird attracting, it's just the fact that they've got lovely perfume. They're certainly a lovely place for birds to uh, nest and to land because they're a nice open frame, pretty little tree, but they don't have any specific food value for a bird. Okay, all right. So your, your recommendations would be Azara and... Think about the blueberry ash. Which yeah. Is that bird attracting? Not uh, well. Uh, the currawongs like the berries. Funnily enough, mm. I'm, I've got one behind my potting shed, and they'll, you'll hear these things hitting the roof of the potting shed. And you go outside, and the currawongs are up there helping themselves to the berries. But they're the only bird I've seen make use of it. Certainly, the flowers that will attract pollinating insects, um, oh, uh, as the azara probably does as well, because it's got a high perfume. It's got to be some trying to attract something. Um, uh, but, you know, they're pretty little trees. Uh, they're evergreen. Um, uh, so they, you know, will sort of disguise views and things year-round. Um, they're fairly quick-growing. Uh, probably the Azara would outstrip the blueberry ash, at least in the initial years, uh, but they both settle down to being much the same sort of size as they get going. And I don't think either of them have root systems that are an issue. Oh, well, thank you very much. You've been a great help. Okay. Okay, bye. Bye. All right, next up we're going to um, Anne out in Oak Park. Good morning, Anne. Oh, uh, good morning, panel. Uh, before I ask my uh, botanical questions, I'd just like to let 3CR know that I came in during the week. I left a notice on the board. I was going to sell my home, but now I've decided to fight for it. I found out in my life that I've had to fight for everything that I've got, so it won't hurt me to have one more battle. Well, <laughs> good so you luck. Can take that sign down. Okay. Now, um, I also noticed you had some seedlings on the counter there, and if you could save me one packet of beetroot and one packet of onion, uh, spring onion seedlings, that would be lovely. Now, I've got a lilac tree. Uh, in the middle of my front garden at home. Now, I'd like to know, how often do you fertilise it? Mm. Is it growing all right and flowering? Uh, it's had a bit of a battle through the lack of water, but mm. it's quite hardy, actually, and, yes, it's, it tries to flower, yes. No, right. Well, if it's, if it's flowering and doing most of the things it needs to do, it probably doesn't need a lot of feeding. Uh, lilacs are not particularly heavy feeding shrubs um, and you know I would only feed them if I'm feeding everything else i.e. I'm throwing compost everywhere or I'm throwing some manure around or, or whatever but it doesn't need to be fed specifically or with any specific thing um, you would just treat it like everything else in the garden so they're very hardy, in other yeah, words. Yeah, lilacs are pretty tough. I mean, they do like a little bit of water when we have a really droughty year. But apart from that, they're pretty hard to kill. Um, and you certainly don't need to overfeed them. In fact, if you put too much nitrogenous fertiliser down, it'll probably go into a whole pile of growth at the expense of flowers. Right. Now, where can I buy some salvias? Because I know the birds love those. The birds do love the salvias. I think at the moment you'll find... Well, 
I'm exaggerating. I think come August, September, you'll find them in most of your nurseries. I know I went into the nursery in Wandon the other day. I go into nurseries just to have a look. Mm. And they yeah, you're one of those people. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> a tyre kicker. <laughs> <laughs> and I noticed they had quite a few salvias for sale. But in the wholesalers, which where I also went the other day, they had very few salvias. The, sal- the new salvias will come in as they start to flower. So in spring, you'll start to see them. But you will find them in virtually all your nurseries, I think, except, of course, Karanga and the native nurseries. Yeah, and, of course, the oh, other lovely. possibility, um, if you happen to be at loose ends on the weekend of the 6th and 7th of October, uh, Mount Macedon Horticultural Society has their Garden Lovers Fair up at Bolabek, and the Selvia Study Group will be there, as per usual, with a whole range of Selvias to sell, um, and some of which are probably quite hard to source commercially uh, mm. uh, under normal ways, because a lot of these specialist clubs and societies keep growing things that um, have never taken off in commercial nurseries for whatever reason. Uh, so it's always a good opportunity. And, of course, those people that are involved in those sort of organisations know a lot about what they're selling as well. So you'd get a lot of um, specialist information about the different selvias if you wanted to, to do something like that. And it's a day out. That's a uh, nice thought. Where, where is that, dear? At Mount Macedon, at our regular plant fair we run every October and it's the first weekend in October and it's at a big garden called Bolabek. So you come in and you'll have 40-odd stalls of different plants and garden products available. Uh, there'll be food and coffee and things available and you also have the opportunity to have a look around Bolabek, which is a lovely um, heritage garden um, at the foothills of Mount Macedon. Oh, sounds great. I up one day at my sister... Now, um, just before I go, a friend of mine is suspicious that possums are raiding his little garden and I want to know, is it possums or is it possibly another insect or mice or something or maybe rats eating his flowers? It's more likely to be possums Possums. than anything else. Um, but without seeing the evidence, it's pretty hard to be specific. But, yes, okay, um, suburban well, possums are you, causing all sorts of grief and issues in people's gardens, and I'd be surprised if it was anything else. Uh, when I was at Naval Park, I used to leave out a little bit of fruit and some bread or toast, and I never had a problem after that. My brother has taken to feeding the possums on his roof, and for the first year ever, he's got magnolias. Mm. Yeah, see, I have a slightly different attitude. I reckon you feed them and they bring in their cousins. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I'm hesitant to that because I've got a neighbour who feed, hand feeds her possums uh, in the garden behind me, and I'm sure that they come for dessert at my place. Oh, isn't that lovely? (laughs) I'm not sure about that, especially when they eat my maple trees. But anyhow, um, it's one of those things we have to live with. But I'd be really surprised if it's anything but possums that are causing issues for your friend. We just have to learn to live with nature, don't we? Well, we We do to an extent. You've you've just got to learn to adapt. Thank you so much. Have a great week. Okay, bye. Now, a few things I need to mention. Firstly, um, Mem has running and rung in on the outside line wanting to know where she can get some Manzano chilies. Um, I suggest you give Renaissance Herbs a call. Um, they're the people that run the um, Garlic and Chili Festival each year. And uh, I'll give you a number for them. 0414 242 
0414-242-712-710. That's 0414-242-710. And that's Renaissance Herbs. Now, also, um, something that came up uh, <coughs> the other week, and uh, during this week I've received... Um, an email in response to what we were discussing um, on air. So thank you, Craig, for your email. And I'm going to um, I'm going to read a little bit of it because uh, Craig sent this in as a warning to um, to our listeners. And uh, he says, firstly, uh, let me say I'm a member of both the Australian Plant Society and the Grevillea Study Group. And as such, I don't want to uh, deter people from growing. Uh, these wonderful plants but um, he wanted to warn people because in his case um, when he experienced his first bad reaction he had no idea what he'd reacted to Um, it turned out that he had reacted to um, a Grevillea Robin Gordon Um, and uh, he's also noticed uh, because uh, one of the parent plants of Robin Gordon is Grevillea banksii uh, that same uh, Grevillea banksii is also apparent to Grevillea sylvia and Grevillea moonlight, which we're talking about on air. So um, he just wanted to mention that he has had the most incredible reactions mm-hmm. to these Grevilleas. Um, there is a warning um, if you look c- closely on the labels. They are listed with a warning that they can be um, a skin irritant but in, um, in Craig's case, he really does have a, an incredible reaction from the sound of it. Mm. And, of course, it gets, he covers up completely, but um, he still, if he's not careful, um, he just gets the most incredible reaction. Um, he says it resembles a chemical burn, starting with an itch, followed by swelling and finally blistering and peeling. It burns and itches at the same time, um, and it's not dissimilar to the reaction some people can get from a, a rust tree. Um, and he's, he's just concerned that if people aren't aware that grevilleas can be, um, have such a, um, a, an allergic reaction uh, for some people, he's worried about um, children, young toddlers mm. um, brushing by them or whatever and um, with their sensitive skin having a, a major reaction. Yeah, look, I suppose you've got to be aware, but then, you, yes, you need to be aware but not alarmed. Yes. Uh, I think with most of these things. I mean, once people find out they've got an allergic issue, then obviously they've got to be more cautious about these things. But it is a really small percentage of the population. It's only a handful of people that have this reaction. In fact, the whole ban on the rust tree made me sort of smile somewhat wryly at the time because I thought there's a handful of people that have a reaction to rust and yet we've banned the tree, uh, and it's only one species which is no longer a rus anyway, so if you're buying any other rus, it's not an issue, it's just that one, which was rus sediana. Uh, and and it, what is it now? It's now rather appropriately called toxicodendron sediana. <laughs> um, and it's a beautiful autumn colouring mm, tree. It mm. is just a stunning tree. Now, I've got an aunt who has an allergic reaction to it, but she knows she has an allergic mm. reaction to it. She also knows what the tree looks like, and so if she goes within Kuya one, she sees it and she steps away. So she only ever had the allergic reaction once because she's very careful now 
because there are still the odd rust trees around in suburban Melbourne in, oh, of in people's gardens. Um, but, you know, I'm not allowed to grow and sell it, even though it's a stunningly beautiful autumn colouring tree. Uh, and it's also tough and hardy. I mean, it's got so many assets to it. Uh, it's sort of unfortunate that some people are allergic to it. And once you do find out about these things, then you are more cautious about it. Um, I mean, it is like saying, well, you know, you, you touch the wet paint and you realise it's wet. Um, so you have to have that allergic reaction to know that you've got a problem. Um, but at some stage in life, most people will find out what their allergies are and then they learn how to adjust Deal with to them. It, yes. uh, and I, certainly if I was in Craig's position, I wouldn't be growing any of those particular grevilleas <laughs> in my own garden uh, and I'd be cautious about walking near them in somebody else's. So mm. um, it is a matter of learning. I've also had people say, oh, I'm going to pull those out because they're poisonous. Got to eat them first in most cases. Well, uh, and yeah. I, really, I think if you don't know a plant, you assume it's poisonous. I yeah. would assume that everything in my garden is poisonous till I know otherwise. Yeah. To eat, I mean. Yeah, well, yeah, and uh, I get people who ask me if the berries are poisonous, and I say, well, to be honest with you, I haven't tried. Um, and I normally eat the ones that come in punnets from the greengrocers, you know. So, <laughs> again, unless I know that you can eat something, I mean, most plants, I mean, these allergic plants are a slightly different kettle of fish because you don't actually have to consume them or anything to have a nasty reaction to them. But anything that is, in fact, poisonous, you have to, in fact, ingest it first. So you're right, Virginia. Why on earth would you go around the garden eating stuff? Um, I mean, it's probably different if you've got small children who tend to put things in their mouth all the time. But then that's also a training thing. You've got to say to kids, look, you just don't eat that. I mean, I probably as a child put all sorts of indescribably bad things in my mouth as a child, um, including blowflies and everything else that small children tend to engage with. Uh, and I'm still here. <clears throat> And the only allergic reaction I remember ever having to a plant was, funnily enough, to the perfume of jonquils. Mm, which is very strong. It is very strong. And uh, if I have jonquils in my bedroom, I will wake up the next morning with my eyes blown up mm. like you wouldn't believe. Mm. And it was a very good way of getting out of school in the early spring. Like, Mum's <laughs> 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 not with us anymore, so she doesn't need... She, she, you well, put she your nose think, in the middle of them deliberately. I used to take a bunch into my room. Yes. Every, you know, if I wanted a day off school, I'd just take <laughs> a bunch into my room and the next morning I'd wake up. And it never hurt, which was interesting. I just puffed up. So yep. it didn't really have any major impact the on poor me. Old John Quills get it again, yeah. don't they? Yeah, oh, and so I go to mum and say, oh, I'm not feeling well, I can't go to school. <laughs> and I've got away with that. Mum never figured out it was only at certain times of the year I seemed to get this thing, and she could never quite figure out why. Um, so it's quite a handy little thing to have. The Russ you have in your garden, is th- which one is that? Uh, Russ Typhona and Russ Glabra, which are two sumacs. Uh, and in fact, it's interesting because you've got the thing that everybody says is poisonous and allergic reacting and what have you, but the Russ Typhona's are known as sumac and it's where the herb sumac comes from Mm. so they're actually edible so Mm. you know so you've got to be cautious that you don't you know sort of coat everything with the one or tar everything with the one brush and I regularly get people who come into the nursery and I point out the rust particularly when it's in autumn colour because it is just beautiful and they go oh no 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 I can't plant a rust tree because people are allergic to it but it's not the same plant Mm. So, you know, and, and nobody will ever get around to ba- saying, oh, I'm allergic to toxic edendron. Mm. Mm. It's a bit like oxalis, isn't it? Mm. Can't have oxalis. Well, hang on, there are Australian oxalis. Yeah. yeah, yeah. and people talk about oxalis being poisonous, but in fact they're using it in culinary things too. Because um, of the oxalic acid in the leaf, it's, quite, it's tangy, it's got quite a bite to it, and in moderation, a few oxalis leaves or flowers in a salad are perfectly acceptable. Uh, it's when you have oxalis in great quantities that the oxalic acid can have an effect on you. Well, that's the same with your warrigal greens. Yeah, well, they can have a, a nasty impact on you if you eat 
too much of it. Exactly. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I think people need to be a little bit realistic about things. Um, and I think you need to be relaxed about things mm. and not too worried about, you know, what plants might or might not do to you. Because uh, if you've never had an issue or a problem with something, is there any real reason why it's going to suddenly happen? Uh, I mean, certainly some people develop allergies, uh, but it's a very small percentage of the population. I, I think most people, if they're gardeners... They've learnt by now what they are going to have a reaction to. Mm. I mean, I know that I, I, I now know that I have a reaction to flomus, yeah. for instance. I know that I have a reaction to sticky weed. Yeah. So I just take precautions yeah, if I'm well, dealing with them. I have the same trouble with rice paper plant. It's got that fine dust on the leaves. Yes. And if I'm fiddling with it, it clogs my throat up and I can cough and hack and carry on for ages. And I never put Budlia through the shredder anymore. Yes. Because of the same reason. Because right. Budlia has all that soft, fluffy mm. stuff yes, on the yes, leaves. Yes. And you throw it into the shredder and this puff of stuff goes up mm. and nearly choked me. It was just awful. Mm. So you learn by your mistakes, I guess, and you say, right, well, I now know I don't do that anymore. Yep. Um, and, and that doesn't necessarily mean in lots of cases that you have to do away with the plant. Mm. Uh, you just have to learn how to react appropriately. Exactly. Now, Stephen, while we've got the opportunity, yeah. um, I believe your trip to Morocco is going ahead. Oh, yes. Yes, we've, we've now got 18 people booked. Um, the minimum to go is going to be 12 or 14, so we're well above the, the minimum required number. Um, but our maximum number is 24. So if anybody was interested in going to the trip to Morocco, I wouldn't wait too long uh, to make your bookings with Australian Studying Abroad. And we'll be leaving uh, in mid-March, getting back in early April, um, visiting a lot of really interesting Moroccan gardens, going to lots of monumental sites, and we'll also be going up into the Atlas Mountains to look at wildflowers. So I think it's going to be a fantastic tour. And uh, I'm not sure how often I'll be doing the Moroccan tour, but I'm looking forward to doing it certainly next year. Uh, if people are interested, I think they should actually consider doing, you know, getting their act together and, and actually getting in touch with the company. Um, because uh, once we're booked out, we're booked out. So mm. uh, that's certainly important. And I guess, too, I'd like to mention the Madagascan tour in um, September, October next year. Uh, I mean, we haven't even got final figures on costings and things for the Madagascan tour. But the problem with Madagascar is it's a very difficult place to organise a tour to. Uh, there's all sorts of uh, things that can go wrong and extra expenses that can come up and all sorts of things that sort of get in the way when you're trying to do Madagascar. And I was talking to the people at the company the other day and they said they would be really, really happy to have people show expressions of interest, at least at this stage, so that they know it's worth their while putting all the effort into getting the tour organised and ready to run. Um, so if people were thinking that they'd like to go to Madagascar with me next year, that's sort of in mid-September through to early October, um, please get in touch with Australian Studying Abroad, uh, put in an expression of interest, then you'll be kept in the loop the whole time. Uh, they'll probably be able to give you a ballpark figure on what you're going to need to um, save to 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 spend on the trip but obviously until they get all of their their airline fares and all those other things for the internal flights and all those things come through and we always have problems with Air Madagascar over there because they keep changing their schedules and as soon as they change their schedules we have to change our um, itinerary and uh, things get out of hand. Well remember when I came with yeah. you and we were booked on a plane and all nicely done and 
they just changed the plane to something yeah. that was too small for the number of people booked on it. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. that was that. And there's no sort of comeback with Air Madagascar. It's a, it's a government-run airline. And, you know, if they have a minister that wants to go somewhere, he'll just pinch the plane. Uh, so it, it can get quite weird but having said all that still a lot of fun um, it's a great country to see it's not an easy tour I would never like to think people think it's just a, a doddle it's hard no, work it's, it's harder than anywhere else I've ever been yeah that is it's, uh, but if you've got a reasonable sense of resilience and a modicum of fitness. I mean, you don't have to be able to clamber up mountains or anything necessarily, but you need to be reasonably fit and capable of coping with a bit of hot weather. They'd be the main things I would tell people about if mm. they're going to do Madagascar. Uh, but the lemurs and chameleons and the baobab trees and all the things you see uh, make any inconvenience worth it. And at least the places you stay in general are really good. So the accommodation in general is really mm, nice in mm. Madagascar. So you know, and the meals are all right, and you know, it's uh, 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 and the scenery is fantastic. So it's just a beautiful place to go. So if you're interested in Madagascar, please uh, get in touch with the company and put down an expression of interest. And if you are keen on the idea of Morocco, which I know I certainly am, um, then you'll need to move fairly quickly if you're going to get onto our group, because I don't think there's going to be too many places left after another few weeks. And ASA is Australian Studying Abroad. Yes, and uh, they're in High Street, Armadale. Um, uh, some people might Just like Google them. Yeah, Google them. They have all their itineraries up on the, online. Um, uh, if you want to take it further, the girls in the office are just lovely, and they will deal with any issues you've got and talk you through things. Um, and help you with anything you need to know about on any of the tours that they're, they're running. So mm. uh, it's a good professional company, and I like working with them. Excellent. You are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. We're running through until 9.15, so you've got plenty of time to jump on the phones if you'd like to ask a gardening question this morning. We have Stephen Ryan, Virginia Haywood, and Graham Sargent in the studio. That number is 94190155 to speak to the team on air, or if you'd like to speak to Carol on the outside line, 94198377. Graham, you've brought in a whole box full of roses this morning. Oh, roses everywhere. You must man. have. Not only here, but <laughs> this, up at our yeah, nursery. I was going to say, this time of year, if you can't get a rose, there'd be something wrong, wouldn't there, really? Yes, I, I brought a lot of roses in so I could enlighten Stephen this oh, morning. Good. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, go ahead. And I can see a box over there with a whole pile of prickly stems in it. I'm not altogether sure you've got me on side yet, Graham. Well, <laughs> see um, if you can. Pam, I've got... Um, Two roses here. One is Shirley's rose that was bred by Bruce Brundrett. Mm. And Bruce Brundrett, of course, comes from a famous Brundrett family. Yes, um, many generations of rose yeah. growers. And Brundrett's have been around since 1893. How's that? Goodness That's interesting, isn't I can it? remember as an apprentice when I was doing my horticultural training... Uh, Older Mr. Brundrett, who would have been around about then yes. in the 70s, he was an elderly gentleman then. Oh. Uh, we went out to visit the Rose Farm as an excursion with mm. um, the school, and it was an amazing place. It was mm -hmm. just really fascinating. Mm -hmm. And he was a really great character in the Rose world. Yes. Well, Bruce's breeding, and of course, Brundrett's as a nursery aren't running anymore, mm. but Bruce has bred some really good roses. This Shirley's rose, he's named after his wife. And uh, it didn't, did win a silver medal in the Rose Trials in Adelaide two years ago. Mm -hmm. And it is a really full hybrid tea flower, holds on very well. And I'd describe it as a, um, a bit heavier than a, than a soft pink. Okay. Lovely rose with a perfume. And the other one that Bruce has, he's named it My Yellow. 
and it's what I'd call a, 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 an orange yellow, which is really good for Australian conditions because it holds onto its colour very well. Okay. So it doesn't bleach out. Mm. Yeah. Mm. That is and good. And it's fragrant and also won uh, a gold medal in the Rose Trials in Toowoomba and a silver medal at the Rose Trials in Adelaide. So it'll it's take, well. it'll take um, different weather conditions, especially if you're you know, up in the north. Um, and uh, it, it, is, it is a floribunda. It doesn't get any higher than about 70 centimetres, so it's, it's, yeah, so it's quite nicer. Small. Yeah, yeah. And the third one I brought in is called Dream Chaser, bred by the famous um, Harkness family in England, and it's a, a hot pink and also has a very strong... Uh, perfume, which is very pleasant mm. and a good healthy rose. Okay. Very healthy rose. We're starting to get into some really tough, healthy roses that are resistant to black spot. Hallelujah. Yes. <laughs> yes, then you don't have to ask, oh, answer so many questions about black spot. Mm. Mm. You're not getting it. <laughs> exactly. Mm. But we've got them available at the nursery, Pam, and we can send them out by mail too if people want them. Okay. Fantastic. Yep. Great. Oh, we have uh, on the line our good friend Fermi out in Reedsdale. Good morning, Fermi. Good morning, Pam. Good morning, panel. Hello, morning, Fermi. Morning. Uh, have you read the, the, what I yes. put on? <laughs> Tazetas are not John Quills. Stephen, stop calling Tazetas John Quills. Mm, I don't think you'd get allergic to the smell of John Quills. Yeah, well, the actually, the perfume of them is nearly as bad. <laughs> and I have to say, I only said John Quills because, because everybody, in everybody knows them as that. If I said I was allergic to, to Zetas, everybody's going to ring in and say, what the hell's a Zeta? <laughs> so I well, did it on purpose, but yeah, I probably should yeah. have prefaced it with, of course, these things are actually called, <laughs> and I didn't, so I apologise. <laughs> yes, I, I, I only came in when you started talking about um, that, and I missed what you had said about um, uh, Ross. I was just going to relay the uh, the story when um, uh, what's that chap Sinatra who uh, is the garden designer, not the oh, Jim. Jim Jim Sinatra did a, <coughs> a design for the um, the garden at the Kyneton Hospital. Oh yes, and he included um, tree ferns. Of course, they're on the. <laughs> They're on the wrong side of the the building and they burn to a crisp. Yeah. And so he was then asked to replace them with something. So he put in the cut leaf sumac. Ah, yes. We then had an idiot um, uh, ex botner retired botanist come along and tell the hospital, oh, those are rust and uh. therefore you'll, you'll have people coming out with uh, allergies to them. And so they went, <laughs> they had the... The, one of the uh, handymen in full hazmat gear. <laughs> oh, no. Go and, and dig them out. Oh. Goodness. And I kept telling him they're not poisonous. And they, they wouldn't listen to me. They listened to a retired botanist instead. Oh, dear. So. Yes, yeah, so it, it does pay to get your information from the right sort of sources. Yeah, well, I, I thought he would have even... He must have retired before they reclassified the poisonous one as toxodendron. Mm. Well, he may well have done, but even so, he should have known that not all rusts cause the same issue. Because, of course, you've got to remember, well, you probably don't because we don't have it in the country, but North American poison ivy oh, yes. is also a rust. Yeah. And people get dreadful reactions to that. Yeah. But, of course, funnily enough, and probably rightly enough, it's on the banned list, so we can't bring it in anyway. Mm. It looked very lovely in uh, Louisiana when I, I was I bet there. it did, because it has got in, gorgeous in colour. it goes lovely or, or red colour. Yes, uh, and I've never seen the effect that is caused by poison ivy, but when you, yeah. you, know, you hear about it in, in things American, and it sounds to me like it's a 
bloody awful thing to, to come tangling with. Did you grab those Fermi and put them in your garden if they were digging no, them all up? No, because they, they dug them out and, uh, and uh, took them away, so uh, I never got a chance to. I really didn't think they would do it, but, um, yeah, no, oh, I, would have, I would have liked to have, but uh, I think they decided that, uh, oh, they were hazardous, so therefore they had... They said they couldn't take the chance on uh, anybody getting sick because of them, because they were, they were a hospital and... Uh, <laughs> well, I hope they didn't plant any rhododendrons, oh. <laughs> or in no, fact any daffodils or jonquils. Lots of daffodils. Yeah, or uh, gravilia. Yeah. Uh, that's right. Yes, I, I think that's dreadful because I was dreadfully allergic to those. I think I'd better go up to the Kyneton Hospital and warn them about the issues of the and genus say, Narcissus. But you didn't get any pain from it. You just got puppy eyes. Yeah, well, it's still a reaction. <laughs> and and I, my mother didn't know there was no pain. <laughs> Did you actually grow out of that, Stephen? Or I don't know. Not? I haven't had them in my bedroom for years oh. because I don't really actually like the perfume of them, particularly in a, uh, in a confined space. Yeah. Uh, so I haven't tried. Uh, but the next time I need a day off from work as the nurse, <laughs> I, might, I might give it a crack and see what happens. Yeah, Speak to the John Quills. Yeah, so anyhow, so yes, it's, it's one of the few plants that I can say I've had a, a, proper, a, a proper positive uh, allergic reaction to. So oh, there you right. go. I do think, Stephen, you don't have to give yourself an excuse for taking a day off. No, probably not. <laughs> I could sack myself, though, because of being, you know, sort of unreliable. Um, who knows? The yeah. uh, 3CR will cover any subject. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I wanted to uh, thank 3CR uh, Radiothon because uh, Margot came out and brought out the... Uh, the gifts that um, Hamish and Sooty are cats, they're not dogs. Yeah. Uh, had, uh, they were very insulted when they heard that they were oh, yeah. oh, yeah. <laughs> They would be as well. Hamish barked. They were probably got quite catty that. about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so that was, uh, it was very much appreciated, and Millie had inscribed the um, front of the book about keep gardening, so that was good. Great. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, so really appreciate that, and glad to hear that you reach your target. Yes, it was mm. wonderful. It, yeah. it was one of our most successful radiothons, yeah. so it was fantastic. Excellent. Oh. Well, great. Thanks very much, and uh, good luck with that trip to Morocco. We'll look forward to hearing about it. Oh, yes. yes, yes I'm, <laughs> I'm sure you will. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks. Thank you. Bye. 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 Yes, every AGM of the Alpine Garden Society, it's become a tradition for me to go up and talk about one the of next my previous trip. trips. Uh, so I get a PowerPoint presentation put together and I go and talk to them about wherever I've been last time. So, yes, yeah, so Fermi's probably already got it listed for the AGM. Actually, Fermi, if you're still listening, I better warn you, I've got a feeling I'm going to be away overseas in Madagascar at your next day. Well, not this year's AGM, but the following year's AGM. So... Oodles of pre-warning there. <laughs> oh, dear. Now, now, did you have a message there? Yeah, please? we have. Um, somebody's rung in from Langwarren about raspberries um, and has asked how far down you should cut them uh, and cuttings, I'm assuming cuttings from the raspberries, how long should the cuttings be and how deep should you plant them? Um, I wouldn't grow raspberries from cuttings. I'd grow them from suckers. So, yes. yeah, so it would be much easier just to lift rooted suckers, which some people would call Irishman's cuttings, um, which I like the term. I think it's really good <laughs> cutting that's already got roots on it. Um, 
And as far as cutting them down, it depends on the variety. Because if they're early raspberries or late raspberries, you prune them differently. Yes, and if they're autumn or summer. Yeah, so we don't really know. If they're autumn raspberries, they tend to flower on the new wood that you produce that year, so you cut the whole thing down. Uh, right to the ground. Right to the ground. If they're spring or early summer raspberries, uh, then you take the old canes out that flowered and fruited this year, but you must leave the new canes that didn't. A bit like hydrangeas. Yes, yes, you treat them, you, you recycle the wood, so you take all the old wood out, keep the new wood. So it does depend on which raspberries you've got, so if they're sort of autumn raspberries, you cut them to ground level, if they're late spring, early summer raspberries, then you leave the new canes that haven't flowered and fruited yet and take the others out. If they're really long, you can top them off, so you can just take mm. the tips off the ones that are early fruiting, um, if the canes have grown up really tall. And if you want more plants, just dig up suckers. It's far easier than growing them from cuttings. Although and it keeps them under control by doing that. Yeah, that's right. You've got to dig out the excess suckers anyway. That's right. You know, Mine so. have gone underneath the, the wire of the um, of my vegetable garden and are coming up in garden beds. Right. Um, and I am not at all surprised. <laughs> <laughs> Neither <laughs> am I. Yes, raspberries yeah. are poor man's roses. <laughs> the, oh. other, the other thing... Now there's yeah, a home yeah, truth. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that's travelling is the russ. Yeah, oh yes, the, the russes, the, the, the true russes that are now still russes are a suckering plant, so if people do plant them, they need to be aware. But it does make me laugh because people will not plant things that are prickly unless they're roses. They won't plant things that sucker unless they're roses. Um, and uh, and they have an issue with things that might be poisonous. Um, apparently roses aren't. Uh, so, um, yeah, so I probably rudely say to people sometimes, they come in and say, oh, I bought this thing from you and it suckers. And I said, well, I would have told you it suckered when you bought it because I always tell people if something suckers. And gardeners make me laugh because they whinge if they can't grow something and they whinge if they can. (laughs) 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 You know, I quite like plants with a bit of zest for life. I'd rather be controlling a plant than mollycoddling one, Mm. to be honest. I also think suckering is better than... When birds take the seed and oh, it turns yeah. up. Yeah, suckers have a limited range that yes. they can move into. Mm. Uh, and they certainly probably won't go under a concrete driveway or, you know, other major... Unless things. it's a Californian poppy. Yeah, well, even they may go under it. Yes, that's true. <laughs> um, but generally speaking, suckering isn't as big an issue as seeding. Mm. Uh, and that does actually raise an interesting thing that's happened at Mount Macedon recently. And anybody who's been following me on Facebook will have caught up with this. The Parks Victoria people decided to remove a whole pile of aspects and poplars up at Lake oh. Sanitarium Picnic Ground what's, what's because it's, it's a weed um, and at, at over 150 years it had taken up about a hectare. Shocking. And so they decided to get rid of them all um, with no public consultation. It was one of the beauty spots of Mount Macedon and people used to go up there in the autumn and take their pictures under these wonderful white trunk trees with the yellow leaves and all mm. that sort of thing. And the locals only found out comparatively recently what had happened. And I went up to have a look and I can imagine that the Somme about the time of the war would have looked much the same as what that area up there looks. And Parks Victoria put up signs saying that they're clearing out the exotic weed species. They're going to uh, revegetate with native plants and extend the car park. And it suddenly struck me that there was a song once that you leave paradise and put up a parking lot. Yes, exactly. Um, And I thought there's nothing to go up there for now. Uh, they've removed the thing that people would have gone up there to park and look so at. So there's no need for an extended car yeah, park. Yeah, why, why extend the car park? And now, of course, they've cut all the trees down and the poplars are suckering, and now they're going to have to use poison mm. to kill all <sighs> of the suck- suckers. 
And and all of logs are still lying on the ground, and the thing is that they're going to clean it all up once the once they get some dry weather. But they've filled the creek with logs. Mm. Um, the tree oh. ferns are now going to be in full sun. They crushed an old rhododendron that was 100 years old underneath a whacking great big poplar trunk. And some of the wattles and things around the outskirts now are blowing over mm. because there's no shelter anymore. Of so course. these trees have got no shelter and they're gone. So anyhow, I've been in touch with Parks Victoria. We're going to have a meeting. Yes. Good. Yes. Yeah. It, and the, I mean, one of the other problems, because they've done it along the banks of the Yarra, they decide that they have to remove... Uh, things that aren't native, and instead of taking them out slowly, mm. they take them all out at once because it's economically more efficient. And of course, then they, they, they those trees have been holding that bank together, willows exactly. particularly. So yeah. now you'll get r- erosion, erosion, of all because yeah. and if you did it, you know, every second willow and over X number of years, it wouldn't matter mm. as much. But yeah. yeah. So anyhow, so yeah. So, so, so Stephen, what's the likely solution? Well, I've actually made a suggestion, uh, which I'm hoping Parks Victoria will take on board. I have no particular objection to them reinstating native forest, but the area where it is um, historically was an old nursery site from way back in the 1870s. It was an annex to the state forestry nursery Mm. at the bottom of the mountain. So they planted a lot of things up there to grow on for sale and also for propagating purposes and as sort of experiments and things and that's probably where the aspen poplars came into being so they've ignored this sort of cultural heritage of the site and so i've suggested to them fine let's revegetate most of the area with native forest but why can't we plant a row on either side of the main path that goes from the existing car park to the creek and then up into the forest to go up to lake sanitarium with a double row of non-invasive exotic autumn coloring trees so that we're nodding to the cultural heritage of the site. We're putting back something that will become a tourist attraction and something that people will go to in the autumn to get their photos, which they won't do in a stand of native forest because they could do that anywhere in a stand of native forest. So anyhow, so I have had an email back from the guy who's in charge of the Parks Victoria area I'm in, um, uh, thanking me for my input and su- suggesting he will call a meeting with me in due course. So Because the cultural heritage... Garden-wise of Mount Macedon is quite important. Oh, huge. Oh, I mean, if you're going important. to start saying, all right, well, we've got to take these things out, then you could quite literally say, well, we've got to get rid of all those exotic gardens. We've got to let's pull down the memorial cross at the top of the mountain. Um, uh, let's get rid of all of the exotic trees that people come from all over Victoria to see in the autumn. Yes. Um, I mean, you've got to be logical and sensible about these things. I mean, I remember way back in that sort of millennium drought where we went on for about 12 years. Honor Avenue in Macedon, which is planted with pin oaks, some of the pin oaks were starting to get stressed by the extensively long dry period. And one of our local dill councillors suggested we let all of the oak trees die and replace them with eucalypts. And I thought, well, for a start, the eucalypts were dying as well <laughs> around the area. So we had lots of eucalypts dying from drought. Uh, so I didn't see that as necessarily a, a, an answer. And he was showing no uh, sensitivity to the fact that it was a memorial avenue. They'd been planted for our war dead. And here he was prepared to let them die. Um, and now, because um, uh, particularly a lot of our uh, Asian Australians love the colour red, every autumn they come up in sort of masses mm. to come up and have their photo taken under these trees. Mm. And if they'd all been replaced by eucalypts, um, uh, forgetting the sort of inappropriateness of 
letting an honour avenue die, mm. um, there would have been nothing for them to come up and take pictures at. It's also mm. creating a, a, a greater bushfire hazard. Yeah. Well, uh, that's the other thing too. A lot of our roads up at Mount Macedon, you need to have that sort of a bit of a break. Yes. And the exotic deciduous trees, particularly things like oaks, mm. are actually a really good fire break. Exactly. Break. So, you know, so you, you, you want to have those sorts of things if we're going to stay living in those areas just to make them that little bit safer mm. as well. So, mm. yeah, so anyhow, so we've had a rather nasty time of it up there and unfortunately I have to say it's become political, uh, which is a bit sad, um, uh, because, you know, the, the minister probably wouldn't have had any idea that this little thing was going on mm. at Mount Macedon. So you can't say whether a Liberal or Labor government would have or would not have done what's happened, because it really had nothing to do with the Minister of the Environment. Yes. It had to do with Parks Victoria. Yep. Parks Victoria made that decision. They wouldn't, have take, they wouldn't take every decision to the minister. No, So now the opposition right. minister is kicking up a stink about wouldn't have allowed that to happen, and, you know, and the whole thing's becoming a little silly, mm. I have to say. So I'm determined to move in a, a, in a bypass partisan way uh, and um, try and deal with the issue and, and now that it's been done, I mean there's no going back, they've got to deal with the poplars now and get rid of them because it's going to take 20 years for the poplars to come back if they leave them alone anyway so what a pity. they might as well just deal with it, seeing as they've gone this far and let's plant an avenue of some exotically beautiful tree that Nobody's even thought to plant an avenue of is what my plan is. If mm. we can put something up there that is unique to Mount Macedon that nobody else has thought to plant an avenue of, wouldn't mm. that be nice? Yes. Wouldn't it be lovely? Excellent. You know, and exactly. it, it would become something really special. Yeah. So mm. it could become something that they remember me for. <laughs> 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 On that note, we're going to go to uh, Ken in Sunshine. Good morning, Ken. Good morning, you wonderful people. See, Good it, looks morning, like, it looks Good like morning. we always have a fight on our hands, Ken. <laughs> Still wonderful, and 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 and, and the, I've always said it. You're the best gardening program, and it's the brains of um, it's the brains of uh, gardening people in 3CR every Sunday morning. The best brains in Australia. <laughs> We're getting swelled heads here, yeah. mate. <laughs> yeah, just don't ask me to bring home a litre of milk. <laughs> You're entitled to it. <laughs> My. Wife and I were having an argument, and Uh-oh. I've only ever had one argument. Yeah. It started the day we met. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Now, um, we were talking about Willy Pilly. Where does it come from? I mean, I know it's a native, but what state and, and where does it come from? Well, I have to say, for a start, you've got to realise there's more than one lily pill. There's quite a few. Yeah, there's quite a few species, So, and they all have their own unique habitat in the wild. But most of them are temperate to tropical rainforest trees. So a lot of the lily pillies are from New South Wales, southern Queensland. Uh, there's actually some tropical ones from up um, in the Northern Territory. Um, uh, so they're sort of mainly in that sort of rainforesty type habitats well we've got a lot of uh, native birds we've got a lot of native trees around the place and out the back i planted uh, we've got an easement and i planted 20 natives indigenous to the area and mm. we've got birds all over the place and yeah well beautiful. done and um we were just i was right that's all i want to know oh dear <laughs> i'm not sure i want to be seen to have taken sides <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> Oh dear. All right. Um, now I've had uh, a message from the outside line. Sue in East Ringwood. Um, she's got bindiweed in the garden. It's about to flower. 
wanting to know how to get rid of it. Yeah. She wonders if iron shelate with potash will kill it. I think you've got to dig it out. Yeah. That's the only thing I've ever... It's I've, called exercise. Yes, it is. Yeah. And it digs out It digs out quite easily. Yeah, and if you get it it's before it goes hard. to seed, yep. uh, they do say, you know, um, one year's seeding is seven years weeding. Mm. Yes. So if you get it out before it seeds, uh, I mean, it's, it's a bit of hard work, but, you know, you're not paying gym fees and you're getting all that exercise. Um... I can't see any other way around it. I mean, I'm certainly not going to recommend uh, poisons and stuff for something like that. I mean, you can get selective poisons that will hit um, broadleaf weeds as opposed to grasses and things. But, you know, even those can be risky and and sometimes they move in the ground so they'll damage uh, plants in your garden beds. Yep. It's just a matter of physically removing it. It is. That's what I'd be doing. I mean, it might look like a daunting job, but once you, you know, get in there, get stuck into it and you can have a nice hot bath and a whiskey after. And once you've dug it out, it's gone. Yeah, yeah. I haven't had it come back where I've dug it out. It is horrible. Oh, it is. It's a beautiful plant. But, you know, and you can, you know, if if it hasn't come into seed, you can throw it in the compost Mm. um, and it will compost down. Um, So waste not, what not. Um, But, you know, a lot of these weed issues that we have, it's more a matter of persistence and physical removal. And if you keep on top of these things, it's surprising how um, they become less and less of a problem over the years. It's a matter that we let them get out of hand, they become a huge job, and then we look at it and throw our hands in the air and can't figure out what to do. So uh, I would definitely be just getting out there and I'd be doing it now, um, trying to dig it out as much as possible. If you miss a little bit here and there, just keep an eye on it um, and you'll soon see the other bits and just just keep at it. Mm, Exactly. Okay. Now, she also has another question. Um, She's seen a beautiful kangaroo paw that has uh, blue-grey leaves and uh, red burgundy flowers. Mm. Wondering what the name is. No idea. Uh, there's too many kangaroo paws out <laughs> exactly, there. Exactly. Uh, and lot. there's a whole pile of new hybrids coming along. Um, uh, Angus Stewart has been breeding the Landscape series. Yes. So there's Landscape Lavender and Landscape Lilac and Landscape Orange and Landscape something else. <coughs> it could be one of those. Um, and they're, in fact, uh, very reliable and good Mm. kangaroo ports, I have to say, even if it's not exactly the same one as she's looking for, because uh, Angus has try- been trying to breed for getting rid of that ink spot condition that the kangaroo paws tend to get and he did give me a series of them at one stage and I planted some of them in the garden at home and Mount Macedon is not the place to grow kangaroo paws as a rule but they've done surprisingly well. Okay. So they are a really good tough range. I I would suggest maybe Sue if you contact Karanga Native Nursery better still take a photo of it and take that up with you or um, go for a visit. They may well have it growing in the garden up there. That's right. But they they keep an enormous range of kangaroo paws and I think they'd be the people to have a chat yeah, to. Yeah, I would. Yeah, Always a good idea to go to the experts. Yep. Mm. Okay, you are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. We're running through until 9.15. If you'd like to jump on the phones and quickly ask a gardening question, 94190155, or to speak to Carol um, on the outside line, 94198377. Let's hit the salvias. Well, I... Always say that I'm not going to talk about salvias next yeah, time, you can't but you can't resist. <laughs> but when I wandered around my garden, it's just at that point where think, a whole lot of stuff has just finished and a whole lot of stuff's just about to start, and there's not a lot in flower. There's the purple salvia that's fallen over, but what I've brought in is tequila, which, which is a stunning thing, which is huge. It, I cut it down to the ground, and it comes back ten foot easily in one year. It has 
for a salvia, large red flowers with a very black calyx, so mm. it's quite um, quite noticeable. It looks like the Strike. Essendon foot, football jumper. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> and with it, I have pink icicles, which has a very large flower for a salvia and is very pink. And when I walked into the studio, Stephen said, oh, don't know about those two together. No, I, I don't think I'd put them in the same spot in my garden, I have to say. I think there's, the contrast is a little too much. Yes, well, they're not in the same spot, of yeah. course, in the garden. And that is another one that I cut to the ground. Now, somebody called Jenny has rung in saying, how far do you prune your salvias? Mm. I don't want to go there again because we've already had this conversation today. But you can, most of them you can cut down to the ground. If you're not sure, cut to where you can see some growth coming. Yeah, and then you, you'll, you'll be safe. Then you're safe. Oh, I've got some news for everybody about salvias, and this is going to really annoy everybody. <laughs> rosemary is now classed as salvia rosemarinus. No. Yes. Yes, it showed up on Facebook uh, only a few days ago. Uh, there's a guy I follow on Facebook who keeps up with all the modern nomenclature and stuff. Uh, and he popped this thing up. And Tim Wilson went on board and said, oh, well, that'll annoy Paul Urquhart and Stephen Ryan. And I got back and said, no, it won't. I'll just take it as sage advice. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so apparently... And, I mean, it depends on who's done this and which botanist and whether it will stay there. But they've done the genetics. They reckon that that, uh, rosemary fits perfectly happily into uh, the sage... Uh, family, sage uh, genus um, and so uh, the name has been proposed as Salvia Rosemarinus and I just think it's hilariously funny, I think the Salvia study group will, will, will have a nightmare time with this one um, but apparently they reckon genetically it sits right in the middle somewhere of the, uh, of the, sa- of the Salvia family Good heavens! So, yeah, so Salvia Rosemarinus is the new <laughs> name for, for Rosemarinus officinalis so uh, who was the botanist, Steve? I don't know. Somebody overseas who was doing the, the genetics and what have you. Um, and this guy I follow sort of whipped it up and showed a picture of a rosemary and, and all that sort of stuff. And it, it caused a, a minor furor in the people that I follow on Facebook <laughs> and so forth, uh, much to my entertainment. Yes. He's, uh, he's not declaring his name, so he won't oh get Oh, no, I, I'm sure shot. his name's out there. But um, <laughs> the guy who, who put it up didn't actually mention who'd done the research. But, mm. uh, uh, yeah, so there you go. Go. There's a really interesting little name change. That's, 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 a, good, that's a good bit of gossip. Mm. Yes, it certainly yes. is. That's, that's stuff. one we're going to remember, Stephen. Oh yes, I remember. <laughs> Nobody will have any problems remembering it. No. Whether they're prepared to accept it or not is another Quite thing. Yes, yeah, exactly. yeah, I'll be interested to see how Meg copes with um, yes. rosemarinus uh, being uh, salvia rosemarinus. <laughs> um, but anyhow, there you go. Sorry, <laughs> I, I just had to interrupt at that very point because it seemed I, apropos. No, that that is extremely interesting. Mm. Yes, I think that's extraordinary. Mm. The other thing I brought in was amber chimes, a chorea, which the one I brought in is not in flower, mm-hmm. but amber chimes is um, a combination of Annie's Delight and Autumn Blaze, and I've got a lot of Annie's Delight in my garden, and I've just got splashes of orange all over the garden. Mm. It is so beautiful. I think it's really wonderful. And you've tried this one before, or this is a new one in your collection? No, this is a new one um, that Bush Magic, which is Sue's nursery, yeah. have, have got, Amber Chimes. Uh, and I, but both the parents, Annie's Delight and Autumn Blaze, I do have in my garden, mm. and I love it. Mm. I think it's and one I think of the best you of found the that Annie's Delight, the rabbits don't it's, touch? It's wonderful. It's, mm. it's rabbit-proof. With all the pink couriers have been eaten is alive. It, is it possum-proof? I 
don't have a real. I mean, what I've is? got possums, yeah. but they're so busy eating all my lemons, and I have got. <laughs> you've got, got, an acre you've got a whole orchard of. Yeah. I've got an orchard of lemons, and, and did, they, they, did they get drunk on the lemons? Um, no. yeah. But they probably taste good if you ate them. Yes. The possums would the possums. be. Yeah, <laughs> the, the possums would have already be nicely spiced. A bit like lemon chicken. Yes. Well, <laughs> they, they only eat the skins, and if I was a yeah. bit braver, I would still be able to juice the lemons because they don't touch yeah. the lemon. Yeah. Yes, that's for sure. And there's probably no real reason you couldn't use no, them, I guess. No. I can't imagine why there'd be an issue because the possums eat the outside off. Are we, could we catch anything from a possum? Ah, uh, yes, there is something that they're blaming for possums. What yeah. is it? But anyway, I'm not going to. No. It doesn't say... And, and really, why eat one in, on the ground that's skinless when I've got another... Yeah, yeah millions 50 of million in the tree. tree. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right, exactly. So you, so you probably don't need to find out. But, that, but I, I have found that the orange couriers just seem to survive the rabbits. The rabbits are driving me demented at the moment. Mm. Oh They're eating. They're hungry. Mm. Poor little fellow. Oh, God, here we go. Somebody's standing up with the rabbits now. Goodness <laughs> me. That's ridiculous. Yeah. And they taste delicious, well-spiced as well. Well, till, till the bushfires, we were plagued with rabbits in our place, and then when the mesh fence went around after the bushfires, Fantastic. We only get one or two. Yes. Yes, yeah, so it is exclusion is the only way to go. Mm. It is, really. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. They're, they're a bugger otherwise. You can't do anything. Well, I was food. thinking of putting another vegetable garden in, but yeah. I haven't because it's such a big it's a big project yeah. because I have, to, I have to make it rabbit-proof right. for it mm. to be effective in any way. Mm. Oh, dear. Do they yeah. get up into your above-ground no. beds, no. though? Well... No. They're too high for the rabbits. The to ones get up I've into, got for the, the, for the present vegetable garden, yes. yes. But they ring bark things. They're devils. They, oh yes, the yeah, ring barking yeah, really is real. Well, my Shocking. garden at times just looks like I've got a whole lot of pot plants everywhere because I've cut the bottom out of the pot plants mm. and yes. then put them around the base of my trees because they ring bark everything. Yes. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and the foxes eat all the all the grapes. Mm. And so when the grapes, you know, in autumn, all the fox poo suddenly changes colour. Mm. <laughs> they um, should be eating more of the rabbits. <laughs> yes, That's exactly. Make them more useful. A, a very constructive thing that I did see between um, Bendigo and Ballarat, which is a magnificent road to drive, mm. really is a lovely drive, there was a fence load of shot possums and there was no less than 250 along a fence. Shot possums? Yeah, they were not possums. Oh, um, rabbits. rabbits. No, foxes. Oh, foxes. Foxes, yes. 250 of them along, along wow. the fence, yeah, which is fantastic. It just shows you the fox population that's is about. Massive. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yes. It and in Melbourne, like too, apparently the Oh, the foxes survey. are very good at becoming urban. Mm. Oh, yes, totally. There's lots of food out there for them, and they're, and they're very clever at finding their way around and mm. what have you. There's mm. probably more foxes in Melbourne than people. Mm. Yeah. One of my neighbours shot five kangaroos. Oh, oh that was nice of What? Disgusting. That's mm. terrible. Absolutely disgusting. Let's go on to a nicer yeah, topic. Yeah, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Enough <laughs> of this dead animal thing, yes. We, we need a bit of early cheer. All right, so well, let's, let's have some flowers. Early cheer. Yes. Is that a tazetta? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It would be. Um... Another little tree that I'm very fond of. I'm not actually a great pink person, I have to say. I mean, pink is going to be in my garden no matter what you do because <laughs> there's lots of good plants that are pink. So, you know, you've got to accept the fact that you're going to end up with pink flowers, I reckon. But I do, in, I do make some effort to control pink in my garden so that it doesn't show up everywhere. Uh, but one pink plant that I couldn't live without um, is the autumn cherry. Uh, Prunus subhertella autumnalis. Um, it's a bit of a misnomer, really. It starts flowering in autumn, so you get sprays of flowers on it often in April, and then it will have a succession of 
Um, it doesn't flower continuously, but you'll have this succession of bursts of flower that will go right through till October, November. So from sort of mid-April to October, November, my little autumn cherry will have flowers all over it. So it's a bit of a misnomer. It should be, uh, I don't know, multi-seasono or something. <laughs> um, but it starts in April and goes right through to October. It's a light little airy tree. Uh, its foliage is smaller than most of the larger flowered ornamental cherries, so it's a daintier tree. Uh, its autumn foliage can be really good, uh, so it can colour quite nicely. Uh, it, it casts a nice gentle shade. Uh, and it's charming. And you can get it in a, in a white and a pink form. The trouble is it's always just sold as autumn nalis. So if I buy in stock from someone, unless I know who's growing what i'm never sure whether i'm getting the white one or the pink one um i'd actually prefer the white in some ways but my trees turned out to be the pink one but i'm certainly not pulling it out it's about four meters tall by about four meters wide and oh, it's lovely. just lovely uh, i thought prunus mume was the first to no this flower. will this will beat it by months uh is mm. now coming out in in masses everywhere i noticed a couple of weeping forms of the flowering apricot uh down mount masseton road looking rather smugly self-conscious on either side of somebody's driveway in amongst gum trees. They look really odd. But anyhow, uh, there's these two weeping ones and they're all coming out with their double pink blossoms on them at the moment. Uh, but yeah, no, certainly Autumn Nihilus will beat Mumei every time. Uh, having said that, because it has these sort of uh, spurts of flowers right through a really long period, it probably never makes the sort of mass show Mm. that you can get off um, uh, off Prunus Mumei. Although having said that, a pink Mumei in full flower looks like Barbara Cartland having an affair with a whirling dervish. Um, Say that again. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost too much for me. It's just such a, a lolly pink uh, and it does it in such vast amounts um, that yeah, I find it a little over the top. It can I, be. Can't yeah. it? That's, what, that's, that's what the whirling dervishes do. <laughs> yes. yes, they're a bit over the top. Um, so, yeah, so I particularly like this one. It's dainty, it's delicate. It uh, is very dainty. Yeah, the flowers are quite tiny. I mean, it's not a big flowered thing by any stretch of the imagination. But your classical flowering cherries, I reckon if you get a week or a fortnight out of them in flower, you're doing well. And the fact they flower in spring means they're probably going to be knocked off by a massive wind. Yeah, well, I call them barometer flowers because when they come into bloom, the wind picks up. Mm, uh, <laughs> Guaranteed. And, yeah, so I, as much as I enjoy looking at flowering cherry when it's in flower and the ephemeralness of it is part of its charm in some senses I'd still much prefer to enjoy it in someone else's garden mm. you know so I'll go and enjoy somebody else's flowering cherry but I'd never bother planting one myself mm. because I just don't think I get enough value for yep. the space they take yep. up I mean I don't mind a crocus that lasts a week because it's only going to be a little clump somewhere and it's just gorgeous mm. uh, but a whacking big tree that lasts a week I think is probably well not paying its way mm. personally mm. I think something right. that is paying its way Let's move on to winter sweet because oh, yeah, it's we one of my favourites. But we have to. Yeah, it's just. It's so stunning. It is just such the most wonderful perfume. Um, and I know yours doesn't seem to have a particularly good scent. And so this is one of the issues with winter sweet. It is a bit of a um, uh, lucky dip. Because when you buy one, you won't you have buy no it in idea. flower yeah, because they right. don't flower till they get to a bit of size. So you're going to be buying a young winter sweet with the potential of it being paler or deeper in flower colour mm. and also better and less better, worse, uh, in perfume. Mm. Um, so there is a little bit of a, a catch-22 with winter sweet, mm. but it is worth the effort. If you end up with a really well-scented, reasonably lemony yellow one, um, it is one of the joys of winter. Mm. And my plant would easily be four metres tall by five metres wide. Um, so it's a shrub with delusions of grandeur, uh, but they're prunable um, and they're tough. 
you know, they'll grow nearly anywhere. Well, the other interesting thing, because mine, mine is so different from yours, yeah. in that, um, firstly, it doesn't flower after all the leaves are gone. The leaves hang on, so, okay. and, and the flowers are very pale. Yeah. So, I have to look twice to realise it's actually yeah, flowering. Yeah. Mm. And then I don't get the perfume as well. Mine looks like Stephen's, but it doesn't smell. And I have to say, it's not a particularly attractive tree. No, the, the shape of the plant the is always good. They're, funny. they're a bit gawky. Yeah, they uh, are. I always get into trouble saying that it's a... Uh, you know, a one-season thing because I do have people who tell me that they like the glossy, bright greenness of the foliage in the summer, but I don't find it a particularly exciting foliage. Uh, and its autumn colour is just a sort of a soft yellowy colour. It's yeah. neither here nor there. I'm going to take mine out because it's not smelling and I don't like it in spring and summer and autumn. So yeah. if it's not performing in winter, mm. it's really failed. Yeah, well, it sort of has. I mean, mine does perform in winter, and I would forgive it almost anything. Mm. But then having said that, what I also do with mine, because I don't find it a particular inspiring shrub during the, the rest of the year, uh, is I grow one of the Viticella clematis over it. And so you prune them back in the winter so that you don't really see where they are, and then they run up through the plant in the summer, and they flower late spring right through the summer, most of the viticellas. They get moderate-sized flowers in lovely shades of purple or magenta, or you can get white ones as well. Uh, and so you get months and months of flowers out of them, and then the winter sweet just becomes a support for something else. Yes. So and it's I worth think that's doing a, that. That's a good way of tackling it. Yeah, yes. So that's what I do with mine, mm. and then I revel in the perfume every, uh, every winter, and then I bring sprigs of it down here and make everybody else jealous. I know, you uh, do. <laughs> <laughs> that's oh, well. And we are. That happens every year, yeah, too. Yeah, that's right, oh, yes, yes. Can yes. you believe it? Yeah, every year I have to rub people's faces in my wee sweet. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I have to say... Because it have... is an extremely strong smell when it does smell. Oh, and, oh and, yes. But it's not one of those really sickly scents either. Like, no. <laughs> like the jonquil. Yeah, yeah, the more sugary scents. Uh, but um, the other thing, I used to have a grower who used to do these, and I wish he was still doing them, because he used to grow them in the open paddock, and he used to grow them up to about two two metres tall, and he would sell them to me bare-rooted in flour. Oh, fantastic. Oh, wow. And it was fabulous, because you knew you were selling a, a good coloured one with a good perfume. Yes. Um, because it was in bloom. Yes. Um, uh, but he planted a crop one year, and the rabbits ate them off to ground level, so he never did it again. Um, it is one thing that my rabbits haven't touched. Yeah, well, there you go. Well, I'm, mm. I'm assuming they were little ones, yeah. though, that were just yeah. babies in the ground that got eaten by the rabbits. Uh, so he never did it again. So if I buy them in from anywhere, I buy them in six-inch pots just as little sticks. And it depends on what the stock plant was they raised the seed yeah, from. Exactly. And, you just uh, don't know. Yeah, you don't I'm, know. I'm very tempted, actually, to have a crack this year of growing it from cuttings because if I can grow cutting-grown ones off mine, I could feel a oh, lot more Oh, it would confident. be brilliant. So this year I'm going to have a crack at some softwood cuttings and see how they go in the mister. Um, and if I can propagate my own, <laughs> at least I know when it does flower for people, it will have a reasonable colour and a good perfume. <clears throat> well, I'll definitely grab one off you yeah, if you can right. manage that. All right, you're on a promise. I'll have a crack at it. I've never tried growing them from cuttings because they're so easy to raise from seed. Um, um, but it would seem logical to me that if there is such diversity from seed, then if we could grow them vegetatively, oh, yes. a very got a, sensible thing yeah, If you've got a strong smelling one, I think it's a yes, very good idea. Definitely. Yeah, so now, that's the plan. Okay, you've got a query. Now, I have a query from Priscilla in East Malvern. Where do you buy the two salvias that I've just mentioned? Oh, yes, tequila. And what was that one again? The pink, pink icicles. Pink icicles. I think she should contact the salvia study group, um, salvia.org.au. Mm-hmm. And also, if she rings back on the outside line and leaves me her number, uh, we could have a conversation. Because I'm not quite... I mean, we you will find it in the nurseries right. later on in the year. But... 
Some of these bigger salvias, though, you don't see around so much because they don't present well in a pot. No, I think think the salvia study group is where she needs to go for these. She needs to come to Mount Macedon in the Um, 6th and 7th of October. (laughs) Uh, Indeed. That's the next time we'll see the salvia study group out in the public arena. Mm. Um, And I... If you got in touch with that organisation, I am sure if they knew you were coming to buy that specific salvia... They would make weekend, sure they had it. Yeah, they'd make sure they had some there for you. Yes, so definitely. I'm sure they'd take orders and things for the different salvias. Oh, so. yes. Yeah. But Priscilla, ring back and leave your phone number and, and also go salvia.org.au for the salvia study group. Mm. And remember to do that. And, of course, rosemary is for remembrance. <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, is a sage. <laughs> Which is now a sage, yes. Oh, I just love it. Oh, Graham, dear. tell me, have you got any more rose pruning demonstrations on? Yes, pr- Pam, we've got one on the 28th of July. It sounds as though it's late, but you can prune your roses even back into August. Yeah. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Saturday at the nursery at 1.30. So that's the 28th of July on a Saturday at 1.30. You better give out the address of the nursery again. Oh, Pam, what, you better be right. 550 McDonald's Road, uh, Clonbanane. Don't go to McDonald's Road in Wandong. It's oh, 550. Dear, isn't it awkward when they have vaulted? Yes. yes. But it's easy to come straight up the Hume Freeway and you'll see the Clonbanane turn-off signs and then just go up the ramp and you'll see the Rose, sign, rose Nursery signs. Okay. okay. So it's almost impossible to get lost. Yes, if you go up the Hume Freeway. Round okay. my That's way. the main freeway between Melbourne and Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> that shouldn't be too hard to find. <laughs> Round my way, there are B-neck roads everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. B-neck road, B-neck yeah, road, are. B-neck road. They, none of them yeah. run into each other, and yeah. there's just hundreds of them. And if there's not a B-neck, as a spine cop. <laughs> Have you seen the spine cop signs everywhere? There must be a dozen spine cops in Australia. Yeah. Yeah. Goodness me. Yes, I just find High Street enough of a problem. <laughs> uh, we, we should be more inventive. We've, we've just got a minute or two, oh, Stephen, right. so well, let's have a chat. I've got one more plant that I sh- should mention. Yes. Uh, this is the Mexican hawthorn, oh. uh, Crotagus mexicanus, and it's one of my favourite trees. Uh, being a hawthorn, it's as tough as they come, so it's very tough and hardy. It'll cope with drought, it'll cope with cold, it'll cope with practically everything except a swamp. Um, it's a basically evergreen small tree. It's, its old foliage tends to die and shed just as the new foliage is coming on it in the spring, so it's never bare. And if you have a mild winter, it will hold quite a lot of its old foliage right well into the spring. Uh, it gets classical white, fairly ordinary flowers in the spring, uh, but it gets these sort of, uh, well, they're bigger than cherry-sized fruits, and in late summer, the tree's dark green with these bright green fruits all over it, which still look quite nice, but the fruit ripens in midwinter and goes the most wonderful rich yellow colour, uh, and they hang on the tree for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. So my tree is just a mass of them at the moment. The tree would be five metres by six metres wide, probably. Um, I prune the lower branches of it to lift it up and canopy it a bit uh, so I can walk under it. Um, the birds don't seem to touch the berries until they hit the ground. Uh, really? And mm. then they'll have a go at them. Because uh, the parrots just, on, on all... The normal hawthorns, they go crazy. All you hear is crack, 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 you know. Yeah, they don't seem to touch this one until they hit the ground, and it seems to be more blackbirds and other birds that seem to go for it once it does hit the ground than the parrots. Okay. And you can make your own whore jelly. Because mm. the big fruited hawthorns uh, are, are quite good for making jellies with. Um, and I always think it's quite a funny thing to offer somebody who doesn't know any better some whore jelly at breakfast. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you always get a strange reaction. Of course you um, do. <laughs> but the ordinary hawthorn, 
is very weedy. It well, pops so, up in the yeah, bush. Does yeah, this pop well, up in the no, bush? No, ne- I've never had a seedling come up, um, which is interesting. Um, and because the birds don't seem to touch the berries until they hit the ground, and then it seems to be the smaller birds, so they don't move the seed around anyway. But it's interesting you say the weediness of the ordinary hawthorn, and, and Pam mentioned the, the birds having a go at the berries, but the parrots have now worked out that there's a food source within the seed of hawthorn and the weedy hawthorn is becoming less weedy because the birds are actually not just swallowing the berry and then depositing seeds everywhere they're cracking they're open actually the seeds cracking open. and taking the kernel out yep. of the seeds yep. and so they're actually having an impact on the weediness of the hawthorn mm. how fantastic you know, which is like why a, you hear yeah. the sound of them cracking yeah, the seeds yeah because if they the were whole just time. eating them yes. they wouldn't make that noise That's right. and so they are actually cracking open the seeds so the weedy hawthorn isn't as weedy as it once was because the parrots have worked it out uh, and they're now actually making use of the the nutrients inside the seed and the same can be said of pinus radiata because of course the yellow-tailed black cockatoos Mm. and things have worked out there's a wonderful food source in those pine cones and hardly any pine cone hits the ground now without most of the seed gone Mm. Mm. Uh, whenever i walk under mine they seem to immediately drop a pine cone Uh. close to my head okay but i i think it's a reason for leaving pinus radiata yeah because they just just need target practice (laughs) (laughs) they'll get better don't worry they'll get better Uh, and on that note Yes, we, we have run out of time. <laughs> Never mind. It's all been lots of fun as usual. We will be back again next week. A big thank you to Carol and Louise who've been handling all the phones for this morning. Um, tune in 7.30 next week. Until then, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.